Well, good morning. Why don't we stand and uh, read from 1 Peter chapter 3. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, starting at 18, and we'll read through to 22. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Lord, we come to some very interesting verses in your word, and we know that all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching. You, I just pray, God, that you will help me reveal uh, that to our congregation today which is important for us to hear. And uh, in a bit of a complicated verse or two, Lord, I just pray for clarity and your Spirit's guidance into truth so that we may learn exactly what you intended us for us to know. So we look forward to our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's great to be back here once again with you on another Sunday morning. And as you know uh, from attending here and uh, through the experiences here, our method of teaching is to uh, do, be expositional in our style of teaching and preaching the Word of God. Now when I say expositional, it's really just a fancy way of saying uh, we go through an entire uh, book of the Bible and we go verse by verse so as not to miss anything. Now we choose this, this method because of the benefits we, we believe it has. Uh, first, like I said before, we, we don't miss anything that God has to say to us. But secondly, it also introduces us to topics within the Christian life that are not always at the forefront of our minds. And uh, sometimes we're introduced to categories that we're often unaware of that are contained within Scripture. And the result of all this then is that hopefully we'll grow in our spiritual walk and be, have a, a wide knowledge of the Word of God and how to live out a Christian life. There are times, though, uh, for, especially in my shoes, when this method of expositional teaching can be quite challenging and difficult. Uh, this is, of course, due to the nature of some of the controversial or confusing content found in Scripture. And if you haven't noticed already, today is one of those passages. Uh, as our text really provides us with two topics that are often debated in the Christian community. The first one has to do with what's written in verse 19 and 20. And it's this idea that Christ, after his crucifixion, descended into hell. You know the Apostles' Creed? If you remember the Apostles' Creed from church, it actually makes the statement in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell. That, that uh, Apostles' Creed, if I'm not mistaken, if, uh, I think was written around 400 AD. So like, well, like you know, uh, t- uh, 1600 years ago. So this is a belief that Christ has done, went to, to hell after the crucifixion that has been lasting for centuries. The second uh, topic that arises is from verse 21 and 22. And it's this idea that water baptism is necessary for salvation. Water baptism is necessary for salvation. 
uh, you see it in 21. He says, corresponding to that, corresponding to the flood, that is, baptism now saves you. So those, those within um, the religious community that are so desperate to have their infants baptized would use a verse like this to support their claims. So if you're not familiar with any of these uh, controversial scriptures and the ones that are often debated, uh, you will be after today as these are the nature of our topics this morning. So let's waste no time and jump right into this, this bad boy here. <laughs> so let's look at uh, the, the first issue, uh, which is Christ's descent into hell. Let's read 18. Uh, actually, yeah, I'll start at verse 18. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patient of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which that, that is, a few persons, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Sorry, I didn't read that very well. There's really three questions that arise from this, this uh, first issue of you know, Christ going into this prison, this hell. The first one is really, who were these spirits that Christ was speaking to? Who were the spirits he was speaking to? Number two, when did he exactly preach this message? And number three, what was the content of the message he was proclaiming? These are the three questions that are often debated. In my studies this week, I was surprised to find out that there were as many as six different views as to what's going on here. Six different views that I could uncover. And what's funny about that is when I began my studies, I was so convinced that there was only one right way to interpret this. And it was a position that I had held for years. But when I went through them all, I realized that there was one other view of the six that had very, uh, had strong merit. Had strong merit. Uh, and uh, I thought, because of the six, four were in, basically invalid from the rest of Scripture. Two had merit, and I thought I'd present those to you today. The first view is held by some of the big names in Christianity that you and I are familiar with. So if you listen to radio, 700, 1140 AM, you hear Chuck Swindoll, you hear John MacArthur, these kind of guys on, on uh, the air. These guys hold this particular view, and this is the view that I held as well up until my studies this week. And which now I'm not so sure that I still hold to, but I still see the validity in the argument. But it's, it goes something like this. That what 18 and 19 and 20 are saying is this. That after Christ was crucified, but before he ascended into heaven, he traveled to hell in order to proclaim a message of victory over the fallen angels who had sinned in the days of Noah by marrying human women. The second view... The only difference between the first and the second view is this, is the message into whom Christ was proclaiming to. So in, in the first view, it's these fallen angels that sinned in the days of Noah. In the second view, though, it's actually, this is about, he spoke to human beings who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Those present who were not, not the fallen angels, but the humans that lived during Noah's time. So the spirits there then is, is, is either the demonic fallen angels or human spirits, like people like you and I. Now, when I was presented with these two views, I thought this is going to be a very easy solution because I'll just do a, a quick Greek word study of the word spirit and I'll find out exactly which spirit is intended here and I'll know if it's demonic or human. 
Well, much to my surprise, I found it didn't help me at all. The reason is, is that the Greek word for spirit, which is pneuma, is used in the New Testament to describe both demonic and human spirits. And there's plenty of references supporting the use of both in the New Testament. So now contextually, that doesn't help me now because it could be either or. So what I thought I'd do is just show you then the supporting text that those who believe it's demons, demonic spirits, what they would use and how they would support their argument. And we have to start in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, uh, this is what's written there. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters are born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Later on in the verse it says, and they bore children to them. Now some believe in the Christian community that, that the sons of God here in the Old Testament is a reference to believers. These are people who are descended from Seth's line from Noah. But the problem with this is when you see this, this phrase used elsewhere in the New Testament, the sons of God is used always in the angelic realm. And you can write these cross-references down. Job 1.6 and Job 38.7. In both those references, it's a reference to the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven. So the, the result then of this union where these angels then, uh, who were demonic, uh, left heaven, came down to earth, and they, and they intermarried and, and had procreated with like, uh, uh, these women, these uh, normal human women. They produced this kind of like freak hybrid human race. And, and, and the other supporting text, they would say, is, is Jude, which is uh, um, J, uh, Jesus' brother. This is what Jude says about the event. He says, Now I desire to remind you that you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And he's speaking about Israel. And then he says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way, so in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what he's saying is this, in Jude he's saying these angels left the heavenly realms and they came down and intermingled and had, went after strange flesh. They went after human beings and had these like, uh, sexual relations and produced these children. The, the, those who uh, would argue for this also use one more scripture to support their argument. And it's actually, they actually use Peter himself in his second book. It says this, this is speaking about uh, warning about false teachers and the destruction that's going to come upon false teachers in the church. And then here's the substantiation for the warnings to false teachers. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live after who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, i.e. Noah and his family, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, i.e. those angels, 
and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, which the angels, of course, did because they rebelled against God uh, in the heavenly realm. So when you read these scriptures, at first read, it seems undeniable that the spirits that Christ was proclaiming his message of victory over were demonic. You'd say the text clearly supports that, and these big names that I listen to and respect greatly in the ministry all hold these views. But, but uh, as you're going to see now, with looking at the second interpretation of the possibility of the human spirits, you're going to see the strength of this argument and uh, whatnot. Now, I was tempted to, by the way, to just give you all the left and right turns about the weaknesses of each argument, but man, we'd be here for two to three hours. So I thought I'd just keep it simple and we can have these discussions and dialogue if you choose to or downstairs after lunch. But let's look at the substantiation for human spirits. Uh, I think the key for me for why it would be a human spirit and not demonic spirit is found in verse 20. He defines the spirits in verse 20. He says, those spirits who, this is the defining principle, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. He gives the time frame in which these human spirits were around and the kind of people they were. Now, the word dis describing them as disobedient could still refer to the angels, because angels were disobedient, so were people. But what's interesting is the phrase that God kept patiently waiting. The question is, what's he patiently waiting for? Well, the answer is repentance. Repentance. And there's a couple key texts that actually show that this is the, this is the thought behind Peter's mind, when using the word patience. Let's look again at Peter's uh, quote here. In, in chapter 2. Look at what Noah is defined. Look about five lines, five lines down. Look at what Noah is described as. A preacher of righteousness. He's a preacher of righteousness. Okay. How can he be preaching a message of repentance to demonic spirits? They can't repent. They don't get a second chance. Once they've made their decision to rebel against God in heaven, their fate was sealed. That was it for them. Remember Matthew chapter 8? Jesus encounters two demon-possessed men and they cry out and when, they come to, when, they, when he walks in their presence and they say this, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? H have you come to torment us before the time? They weren't expecting an opportunity for repentance and re renewal to God. They were expecting judgment in that moment. No repentance is available to demons. Furthermore, in verse 20, it says that a few got saved. A few got saved. That means that God's offer of salvation extended beyond Noah and his family. And we know that then, therefore, because demons can't be saved, it has to be the human beings only. 2 Peter 3.9 is also helpful in linking God's patience in reference to repentance. Because uh, it's powerful because it's the same author using the same word in two different letters. Look what Peter talks about here. The Lord is not slow about keeping His promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So patience is linked to repentance, and it's again in the human realm. Now God's patience is clearly seen uh, in uh, Noah's day, because if you do the math, going back to Genesis 6, he waited for 120 years 
from the time he declared to Noah he was going to destroy the world to the time he actually did it. 120 years waiting for that generation of human beings to make themselves right, or for God to make them right before him. Only eight people, Noah and his, his uh, sons and his wife, sorry, his daughters and his, his wife and his son-in-laws responded to God's offer of salvation. Another substantiation for why it would be humans is found in Genesis 6. And I didn't show you these verses in the original PowerPoint. But look at who God is frustrated with, angry at, and ticked off at in, in verse chapter 6. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on this earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. The Lord was sore that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, and from man, and from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. He's not ticked off at demons here. He's ticked off at mankind, the human race. So those are uh, the two arguments. You can decide for yourself which spirits he's speaking to. <laughs> so what was his message? What's he proclaiming? Well, the truth is we don't know for sure because Peter doesn't tell us. And because he doesn't tell us, it obviously wasn't the main focus for him, because if it was, he would make it clear what he wanted us to know. But the Greek word for proclamation or proclaiming doesn't help us either, because it, all it really means is to herald a statement. Now, in the New Testament, the majority of times this word is used is actually in relationship to the gospel. It's almost unanimously about the gospel. Here's the problem. We've already discovered that demons can't repent. So he's not preaching them an opportunity for salvation. And if it's for people, it can't be an opportunity for salvation again. And I know some of you have experienced the Roman Catholic Church in the background about purgatory and all this stuff. Um, uh, they would maybe use this passage as, a, as an opportunity to say, yeah, God gives people in, in, um, in purgatory a second chance for salvation. But the Bible makes this very clear. That's not true either. Just like demons, humans don't get a second chance. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes God's judgment. You die once, and then comes a judgment. You don't die once and get a second opportunity. The scripture interprets itself. So his message then couldn't be one of offering them a chance of relationship and forgiveness. So what did it likely have to do with? Well, I don't know for sure, but this is my suggestion. My suggestion is that this message had something to do with his victory over the power of sin and death. Despite these spirits' rebellion against him and their plan to thwart God's plans, whether it be in the heavenly or earthly realms, Christ was ultimately victorious. And there'd be nothing they could, they could do, despite the rebellion, to stop him from winning. I love it here because in verse 18 he says, He was put to death in the flesh. So yeah, you might have... You might have killed the Savior and thought you won, but he was made alive in the Spirit. So he still lives. And then when he gets, in verse 22, when, he goes to, when he's resurrected and goes to the right hand of the Father, which is a position of preeminence and power, he receives his earthly body. Here he receives, he receives his body, I should say, which is a heavenly body, but he, it's a physical body. So here he is, not only he's dead in the flesh, he's alive in the Spirit, but he's also alive in body when he receives it and he's resurrected. 
So he was triumphant over their schemes and their plans. Again, I'm looking, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and your interpretations on what you think that message was and we can have a good discussion afterwards. So let's take a look now at the second issue. Does water baptism really save you? That's what verse 21 seems to suggest. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. There are two observations that are critical in this text to substantiate the an- that the answer is a resounding no. The answer is a resounding no. There's two observations that are key. First one is this, that Peter draws a comparison between which kind of baptism actually saves. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, not that kind, this kind, an appeal to, good, to God for a good conscience. So if you look up at the PowerPoint, the salvation that doesn't save is a wet baptism. The one that removes dirt from the body when you go in water and it cleanses you like having a good shower. The one that does save you is the dry baptism. It's an appeal to God for a clear or good conscience. So what does that exactly mean? Well, Hebrews 9 helps us. Again, the Bible always interprets itself. Look at verse, Hebrews chapter 9, 13 and 14. For if by the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. This is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system that Jew would perform. He says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through eternal, his eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousnesses from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You see what's going on here? How does one have a clean conscience in this context? It's through the blood of Christ. It's through the blood of Christ. There's no water present in this passage. So when someone appeals to God for a clear conscience, it's another way of saying this, that a person has recognized their need for forgiveness because they have so much sin in their life that they need God to take care of it. And it only can be taken through care through His provision, which is Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And if we exercise our faith and believe that truth, that we can be in right standing with God and have the assurance of heaven. So again, the context is clear. Peter makes it obvious that it's the dry baptism, not the wet baptism that saves, just in that verse alone. But there's a second significant observation I don't want you to miss. And that's the role that water plays in this passage. Okay, so he says this, corresponding to that. Corresponding to what? Cor- is going to make a statement based on his, the events of the flood. So when you think of baptism, I'll just ask you a question. Have you, when you think of baptism, don't you think that the water symbolizes a, 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 um, being in right standing with God and being cleansed? Like being cleansed? What's interesting here is the water in this context is an instrument of God's judgment, not an instrument of salvation. Right? How did the people die in Noah's day? Through water. How did the people get saved in Noah's day? By getting in the ark. The ark is the means of salvation, not the water. The water is the instrument of judgment. I think that's really important, church, to recognize that. 
Because once again, when we truly understand the role of the water in the flood, it completely dismantles any idea that water baptism produces any spiritual rebirth. And the reality is how Noah was saved in his day and the role the water played in his salvation is completely parallel to the cross today. Let me give you the parallels, Old to New Testament, Ark to Cross, Ark to Cross, Noah to us, okay? First of all, God made it clear to the people in Noah's day, judgment was coming for sin. What does he say from the New Testament? Judgment is coming for sin. So in the Old Testament, in Noah's day, God provided a means of salvation from sin. And, and in our day, he does the same thing. And what's really cool about this is both of the means of salvation were pieces of wood. <laughs> one's a boat made out of wood, and one's a cross made out of wood. Third, Noah had to make an evaluation then whether God was trustworthy. Was, was God's word trustworthy? Was he really going to flood the world? Was he really a sinner? Was he providing a means of salvation? Would he actually save him? All these types of things. Noah believed him and got in the ark and was saved. We, when God makes the offer to us, that, of the, same, the same offer, we have to evaluate, is he trustworthy? Do I believe him a sinner? Do I believe that he provided a way for, out of this for me? Do I believe Jesus is the means of salvation? Do I believe that the cross is the means of salvation? Do I believe all these things? And if we say yes, we are also rescued as well. And finally, those in Noah's day who accepted God's provision were saved. And those who were rejected were judged and condemned and died. And it's the same for us. The same for us today. The, the parallel of salvation in the Old Testament is identical to the New Testament. It's just we have a greater revelation of who that Savior is. But the means of salvation has always been the same for God. Now when you understand this, isn't that cool? Or isn't that like, like excites you about the Word of God? I mean, you take a minute here to think about how this furthers your understanding of baptism. So, when you're standing in the water at baptism, this is not a picture of you being right with God at that moment. This is actually a picture of death and judgment. Because when you're standing in the water, it's an instrument of judgment in Noah's day. And when you submerge under the water, it's a picture, Romans 6 makes this clear, it's a picture of you being, uh, being dying to sin. When, when you're under the water, it's a picture of death to sin. And let's be honest, if the person helping you being baptized left you under there, or even held you down, you wouldn't survive. <laughs> You'd drown. It's only because you're raised out of the water that you live. Right? So you're, you're standing in the waters of judgment. You submerge under water as a picture of dying to sin. But then when you raise to new life, and the person that sits you out of water, that's what a picture of deliverance from death, because of what Jesus did for you. Now it's cool when you understand baptism that way now. And I'm really grateful for my study this week because I've added to my understanding of what's actually going on to a greater degree than I ever had before when, when baptism occurred. And maybe from, the next, maybe from now on, the baptism services we do, I'll preach from this passage alone. Let me just give you a plug. If you haven't been baptized yet, but you've professed your salvation in Jesus Christ, don't wait much longer. Don't wait at all. Get baptized as a declaration of an inner reality that's occurred in your life. And that's what baptism is. It's an outward expression of an inward reality that's occurred in your life. It's not the means of salvation, but it's a symbol of your salvation and commitment to Christ. Now this reality, Peter makes clear, was only made possible because of the resurrection. 
And we pick this up here really in uh, verse 21. After he says you to make an appeal to God for a good conscience, he says this is through the resurrection of Christ. It's through this that you can appeal to God. Because without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. If Christ stayed in the ground and never was raised, you and I would still be, we would still be accountable for our own sins. It's because he conquered sin and death that we also conquer sin and death. But if he stayed in the ground, you and I would be facing God on our own merit. And it wouldn't be good. But the resurrection, however, not only resulted in salvation for us, but a return of Christ to his rightful place of supremacy in the heavenly realms. And we pick this up in verse 22. He says, uh, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Well, why did Peter end the, sub or the, the, the passage this way? I think it was... It was just to emphasize his main point for the whole text. And I think today's message, I, I really struggled with this to be honest. Uh, I've spent the whole entire week going, what is the main point of this text? Why the mention of proclamation to the spirits? Why the mention of a supremacy in heaven? Why go on this whole baptism t tangent about salvation through Christ? I, I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And uh, this is what I think was going on here. Remember that the, from last week's sermon to this week's, uh, there's a continuation. And we spoke about uh, Peter's reminding us that it's right and good to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ. Remember verse 14? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Verse 17? For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So he's encouraging the believers that it's okay to suffer for injustice if you're standing up for Christ and the gospel truth. You're not unloved. You're not un undes undesirable. God is in favor of your life in that way. And he says, just to remind you, that's exactly who, what Christ did. That's who you're following. So don't think that God's asking you to do something unique. You're actually patterning yourself after the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So I think what he's saying, what the point is this, is that he's saying despite his unjust suffering in the flesh, he was still triumphant. Yes, in the physical body, life was difficult and life was hard for him. But in the spiritual realm, he was victorious. He was victorious. Not only did he triumph over the spirits who were, who were in prison that tried to thwart his plans and basically destroy everything he stood for, but God exalted him to the highest position of honor, power, and authority in the heavenly realms. And he's saying because Christ did, uh, uh, God did that for, for, for Jesus Christ, you will inherit those blessings in your life as well. So you, therefore, you can suffer like this as well, knowing that your Savior conquered all of this Thing, all of these things. So don't, it's not a waste of time, energy, or thoughts to put your hope and trust in Him because He is King over the spirits, spiritual world and He's waiting in heaven in His rightful place of authority and honor. What a tremendous privilege and blessing it is that if we suffer in the flesh then because it won't be in vain. It won't be in vain because there's tremendous spiritual blessings that, that await us in glory because of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished. All right, a lot more could be said, and uh, I, I omitted tons of stuff, but uh, I want to just 
highlight, I think, what the main four points are of this passage. First lesson is simply this. Throughout history, God has always provided a means of salvation for sinners. Throughout history, God's always provided a means of salvation for sinners. And Noah in his day, that world could have been made right with God and could have escaped the ark of the flood. They could have 